a decade since Dr. Julia Haller published her inspirational editorial, Cherche la Femme, in JAMA Ophthalmology. Since then, she and her team have been tireless in their pursuit of diversity in the field of retina, particularly within research, authorship, and editorial positions. So where are the women now? I'm Rebecca Hepp, Editor-in-Chief of Retina Today, and you're listening to New Retina Radio, brought to you by Retina Today and Bryn Mawr Communications. Today, Drs. Adrian Scott and Steve Sanislow are talking with Dr. Haller about the state of affairs in retina and just how far we have come and how much is left to do. Adrian, Steve? Thank you so much for that introduction, Rebecca. I'm Adrian Scott. I am Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, at Wilmer Eye Institute, and also Medical Director of the Wilmer Bel Air Satellite. Hi, I'm Steve Stanislow, Clinical Professor of Ophthalmology at Stanford University Medical School and at the Byers Eye Institute at Stanford. I'm Julia Haller. I'm the Ophthalmologist-in-Chief here at Will's Eye Hospital in snowy Philadelphia, and uh, I'm a retina surgeon. Well, Dr. Haller, it is an an amazing honor to be here with you and uh, also with colleagues to discuss our important work on diversity in the field of retina. And I'm truly honored to have this conversation with you. Um, You know, I remember reading in 2015 your editorial in GEMA Ophthalmology, Cherche la Femme, and it was one of the first times I'd read an article like this at one of the, you know, high-impact peer-reviewed journals. And I was inspired because I thought if Dr. Haller and her stature is noticing a problem and, and, and identifying a problem and, and offering solutions and bringing this to the uh, attention of our field, then, you know, this is a very important situation. And it really heartened me as a woman starting out in the a field of vitreoretinal surgery. As we look back almost 10 years later, Dr. Haller, um, what is your perspective about where we are now um, compared to where we were when you first penned that article and had that idea? Well, Adrian, uh, let me say that it's an honor to be speaking with you too. <laughs> and uh, congratulations on uh, all the incredible work you've done, uh, You know, both advancing clinical medicine, but also in, in, in the field of, uh, of disparities. Um, I, I, I think we've made progress. I think um, one important piece has been recognizing that there's an issue and then starting to measure it and get some metrics so you can start to think of ways uh, to impact things. And um, in that that editorial to which you refer, I, I looked around for examples of journals and uh, you know outside our field of medicine where there had been efforts made to expand uh, the number of editorialists, and it was very clear. And you know, it seems so obvious when, but what? But you you don't think about it until you actually study it. You know, all of us, when asked to nominate someone for a role, we think of our own friends, we think of people we know, and so um, to the extent that um, there have been fewer women, fewer people of color in the field, you know, you just we didn't the the existing hierarchy really didn't know uh, a diverse group of people to ask. And uh, it takes work, it takes intentionality, and it takes um, specifically making an effort to expand who you know and who you might ask uh, in order to achieve change. And so um, I think it's very encouraging that when we measure things and then we look to see when there are differences, can we identify reasons for differences? 
maybe we can we can um, advance the cause. So I wrote that. Uh, Neil Bressler was editor uh, of Gem Ophthalmology. He asked me to write that. And if we and then later um, we did a study. Sharif Faithy, who's um, a resident here, and then was a fellow in Cornea at uh, at Wilmer. Um, did a study where uh, they looked at editorial, and I was actually a co-author too, we looked at uh, editorials and the increase between the 2015 to 2019, up to the 2015 to 2019 group. So taking the, the cohort back when I wrote that original editorial and then afterwards, and there was uh, a definite increase in the number of women editorialists. And, um, and that increase was led by JAMA Ophthalmology. So you know, I think we have to have a shout out to Neil Bressler here uh, because he's an example of uh, an editor who really made an effort to include more women and it worked and there was a ripple effect. Now, was it just due to that? No. You know, obviously there were more women in senior positions. Um, and and but but I think it it does come down to individuals and our responsibility to to make the world a better place because we can't. Um, when we looked uh, in, in another study uh, that uh, Jay Sridhar uh, pushed, we looked at the presence of women in podium positions. So, you know, another another thing where you're asking people to speak and choosing people you know. <laughs> and so we looked at the um, the how many women were on in podium positions, and this was just in Retina. Um, and over the 2015 to 2020, uh, 2019, I think, time period, um, there was not much of an increase and it, it languished at about 20, 24% um, rate. As we um, looked at the, at the numbers and specifically looked at who was on the program committee, if there was at least one woman on the program committee, there was significantly more uh, representation. So, you know, that's that's another little index of where you can make a difference. But again, you have to get the women in the leadership roles. I mean, when I when I took this job, there were only three women chairs in the whole country, um, and and I was I was the only female president of the American Society of Retina Specialists for what like fifteen years. You know, before Judy uh, Kim was the second one. So. We've been few and far between, and and in the um, in journals, there are very few women on the editorial boards uh, relative to men, and zero um, ed editors in chief. So, you know, there's there's definitely room to move there. Another thing we did um, was look at the literature, and and this was something um, that Anchor Nakar did, who's applying in ophthalmology this year, um, and working that. And I was a co-author on this and uh, looking at 25 years of retina publications. And uh, we did find a significant increase in women in first authorship positions and um, and also uh, in, in senior authorships. So, and the if there was a woman in a senior author position, it was much more likely to have a woman in the first author position. So again, um, I think leadership, mentorship, are uh, recurring themes that come across uh, in, in all areas of diversity. Um, and, uh, and and again, it's important to measure things. It, it's interesting when we look across specialties, uh, retina seems to be leading. Um, so we can be proud of our specialty. Uh, if anything, we're, we're punching a little above our weight there.
Well, Julia, I, I, I you know, think that the way that you approached uh, that research um, back way back when in 2015 was it was really great because you know a lot of people were just talking about the number of women in retina, let's say, or the number of women in ophthalmology or or surgery or anything, but they weren't necessarily specifically looking at in in sort of uh, leadership positions or influencer positions, and so I, I think what's so remarkable about your work and, and the work that you cited in that editorial is looking at that and, and looking at, you know, who is, who is making this decisions for, uh, you know, invited editorials, um, who is, who is, uh, reviewing papers and that sort of thing and being editors. So I, I think that's very great. And I'm really encouraged to hear that you've have data showing things are much better. I mean, obviously we're not where we want to be, but the fact that it's improved is, is really encouraging. Um, I'm kind of curious, you know, what you feel like are the next steps for your research? You know, what else do we need to know to help make things better and elicit change in our field? Well, the good news is there's lots of room for research and lots of interesting things to talk about. You know, the bad news is there's a problem, right? Um, but I, um, I mean, we've been interested in a number of things. I I think when you talk about how who's influential and who makes a difference, uh, we're casting a broader and broader net. Um, what Ashvini Reddy at at Hopkins um, spearheaded a paper looking at who who had industry relationships. You know, now like thirty years ago, that would have been totally for it would you know it would have been who's tainted with industry kind of. <laughs> now things have really moved and um you know the who uh is on these kol uh boards um you know who's considered worth uh engaging as an expert by uh startup companies and having on scientific advisory boards is actually kind of a feather in your cap and um so she did an interesting study looking at all the different relationships you can have, you know, that you have to sign off on your conflict of interest. Are you on a speaker panel? Are you, you know, one of the uh, lead people who's um, the sort of the face of the the new, the new product? Um, and she found that women were way underrepresented across the board in those positions. Uh, and actually that's, that's one of the, the worst areas of disparity. So that may reflect maybe the intersection of the disparities on the industry, entrepreneurial, startup, and company side, as well as the disparities on, on the medical side. Uh, and even when women were involved, uh, they were paid less because you know this is reported through the Sunshine Act. So even the women who who were part of it uh, had a significant were paid significantly, were considered less worthy of more of money. Um, so. So I think broadening the uh, bandwidth with which we're looking at disparities issues is is one one thing that I would that I'm interested in. But but another thing is um, you know how does this impact on patient care, and and what are the disparities in the way we recruit patients? What are the disparities in the way we treat patients? <laughs> um, and and how do we make that better? And um, and then by extension, how are we building a pipeline of ophthalmologists in general, but you know, also retina specialists in particular, who are more representative of our patient base? Because I think um, what we're increasingly understanding is that having physicians who 
you know, that you can relate to makes a difference no matter, no matter who we are. You know, I even see, I see it myself, you know, if I, if I'm seeing a dermatologist who maybe trained somewhere I did or knows friends of mine, you know, I just feel more comfortable uh, with them. And, um, the, and obviously that plays out across the, uh, the whole spectrum. So we've done um, some interesting work spearheaded by uh, Rebecca Suarez, um, looking at uh, geographic census data and things like, for example, um, uh, she came up with the idea of looking at all the clinical trials in a certain period in macular degeneration and seeing where they were located and then looking at how hard it was to just physically get there. Because we, you know, we know one of the problems with recruiting patients studies, if, if they can't, obviously, if they can't get in, um, uh, they, and, and so uh, what that study found was that uh, clinical out trial access was reduced for Blacks, Hispanics, Asians. Uh, it correlated with education level. So more highly educated people have more access just, just geographically. This is not, you know, nothing to do with their desire to get in. Um, so education levels, uh, rural uh, and Midwest and Southern uh, folks had had lower access. So, you know, all of the benefits that we know from participating in clinical trials accrue to patients. You know, they understand the disease better. They understand, in, in addition to getting kind of state-of-the-art cutting-edge treatment and the potential to be in revolutionary new trials and at least be educated, even if the trial doesn't work out, you know, you get state-of-the-art care, you're monitored more carefully. I mean, I always tell my diabetic patients, you're going to get so much better being in the study, you know, and, and you're, and you probably your hemoglobin A1C is going to get better because, you know, everybody's going to be asking you about it and you're going to be thinking about it. So all of those advantages that accrue are, are meted out in a unequal, unequal way. We just um, did a iris database study of treatment in the first year after central retinal vein with macular edema diagnosis. And one of the nice things about the ICD-10 codes is you can code for whether the vein occlusion has macular edema too. And uh, we found disparities in treatment across the United States. Uh, women were treated less. This is in the first year. So, so we know that early treatment uh, has plays out in terms of um, visual outcomes. Women were treated less, Blacks were treated less, Asians were treated less, uh, older people were treated less. And there was a sweet spot of 2040 to 2200 where about 75% of people are treated. It drops off on either side of that. So, you know, if, if, you're, if you're 2040, people say, well, you know, you're probably gonna be okay. Personally, 2040 is not what I ideally like my surgeon peeling my happy retinal membrane to have. And then also, you know, we all have patients who are 2800 who can, can improve um, and, and they're written off um, more uh, than people in that sweet spot. So, you know, only 75% of people being treated in the first year for vein occlusions with visual loss and, and macular edema. You know, there, there's, we know there's under treatment, you know, studies have shown under treatment in, in, um, overall in, in, um, in age-related, in wet macular degeneration. Um, but it's interesting to see, you know, even after all these years of available treatments for vein occlusions, second most common cause of retinal vascular disease, there's under treatment and disparities and, and you wonder why, and, and you wonder 
you know, these, these big studies show you something, but then you go, well, where is it better and why would it be better there? And can we drill down on, on, um, things that, that can make it better. So anyway, that was a very long-winded reply. I think there's tons of challenges out there. Oh, here's another thing. The, you know, the, the match didn't even record any information about, uh, race, uh, or ethnicity until 2016. So if we wanted to say, you know, let's look at um, all the female, you know, well, we could, we could do probably female because you can kind of, you know, you have those programs you can figure out if names are male or female. But we, if, we only, if we wanted to say, let's look at all the black um, retina specialists who've been trained, maybe, you know, maybe there's no disparity in uh, their vein occlusion treatment, but you can't do it because um, th those people are just finishing their training right now. So we don't know what the outcomes are. And we don't have good granularity about, for example, Hispanic ethnicity. You know, we have to impute Asian ethnicity. Um, there just, are just so many things uh, that we don't have the granularity uh, to understand yet. Um, I commend the ASRS, you know, making an effort to have us all log in and 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 put more in our profiles so people can understand us a little bit better um, and maybe correlate it uh, with other types of outcomes. So that's that's fascinating. I agree with so much of what you said, and uh, you know, there is in this climate some pushback against initiatives that encourage. Um, you know, examination of diversity, inclusion, equity uh, practices. So if you, Dr. Haller, had to speak to um, your colleague who's designing the program for a major meeting or your colleague who's designing, you know, the next panel or the industry colleague who's designing the next ad board, yeah. what is your advice or why is this important to look for diversity? And they would say, well, I just want the best people. You know, I don't, care about color or race yeah. or gender, et cetera. What, did, what do you say to those individuals that don't quite get why, why, why these things are important and push back? Well, first of all, good point. And I totally share your dismay at what I view as a disastrous current climate that says things like anti-woke you know, uses these huge generalizations uh, to disparage uh, totally legitimate concerns about disparities and diversity. Um, I think the best way to do it is with data. Um, and, I, it, you know, of course, if you look at the population as a whole, that doesn't seem to be working either. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, vaccine denial, I mean, I, it's it's a daunting environment. But one would think, at least in our professional community, um, that data, for example, uh, from uh, there, there's uh, there was some, some nice work from a group at Wharton looking at board diversity and the amount of time spent deliberating on questions and the type of decisions that were made uh, in terms of and they, they were able they had metrics for how good the decisions were and they also had metrics for how much deliberation and research and time was put into them hopefully, you know, that correlated with the decisions being better. Um, and if the board was diverse, it made a huge difference. And when you think about it, I think that makes sense because if they're, if you're hanging out 
with your bros from college, yeah. <laughs> um, you you may all come to the discussion with kind of the same preconceptions and you may come to like, yo, that's the obvious decision. But I know myself when I'm around a table of people that I don't know, particularly if they come from different backgrounds, I do my homework more because I'm a little worried about how I'm going to show up at that table. And I want them to be impressed with my level of preparation and how much, because they don't know me, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm coming as, as a really different person. So I've found myself that on more divorce, more diverse boards, um, I myself push myself a little bit harder to be better prepared and to think about things uh, and be ready for the discussion a little bit more. And um, I and that plays out in actual research uh, and outcomes. And and um, you know other studies have looked at boards with more women and uh, found that they've uh, been more successful and and delivered more shareholder return. <laughs> so I I you know I think you have to speak people's language uh, and and show them the the data uh, about where the rubber really meets the road um, in in terms of the effectiveness of more diverse boards. It's not, and and you have to push back against people saying using words like woke. Like words really matter. There there's a um a whole group of women leaders who have a uh, campaign against the word bossy <laughs> because uh, bossy is used to disparage uh, women who are uh, ambitious. It's not used. Steve's never been called bossy. I mean, like maybe once, but. <laughs> Adrian, probably you and I have been bossy. You know, it's just um, it is it's a word used to describe uh, women who who are ambitious, and um, and they they've made a movie about it. I actually show a clip sometimes in talks because it's 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 very cute. And my favorite part is where Beyonce uh, comes in at the end and she goes, "I'm not bossy, I'm the boss." Love it, love it. <laughs> so if you are the boss. <laughs> That uh, makes a difference, but but uh, you know words matter, and and I'm I, I had thought about it before with women because you know they're say they're used words are are said about them like they're too ambitious. That was said about Hillary Clinton. You know she's too ambitious. She's strident. Uh, you know you know last time I checked. <laughs> She was up against some men who were equally ambitious and strident, but um, that was used to belittle her. And now I see it playing out in these debates about totally other areas, uh, including uh, pushes for diversity and um, pushes uh, to combat things like anti-Semitism. So, so Julie, I have a, maybe a quicker question for you to answer. Yeah. And you brought up that, you know, this does matter a lot because we are talking about treating patients. And, you know, one of the things is, I think we all look at the clinical trial data. It's very important, especially these very large clinical trials for FDA approval of drugs and things like that. And, you know, those trials are usually pretty balanced in terms of participants in ophthalmology, at least for male-female balance in the trial. But one thing I've, it seems like we don't really see any subgroup analysis or planned subgroup analyses uh, looking at male versus female outcomes and things like that. And I'm curious, do you think that's because it doesn't really matter in ophthalmology? Maybe men and women should be treated equal, all the same or, or is it? No, not I think it's because um, people haven't thought to do it. Um, so one of the things, um, and this is like 15 years ago now, when Bernadine Hilly became uh, uh, head of the NIH, 
it was they um, worked on data looking at the clinical trials in general, and you know women hadn't been included. So all the information about treating for heart attacks, for example, cardiovascular disease, was all male centered. And I think it's pretty well known now that women have totally different or or a host of different symptoms than men, and that the classic heart attack was the male classic heart attack. And the, and the outcome of that was that women were being undertreated, their heart attacks weren't being, uh, you know, they would have all these cardiac complications that weren't being adequately treated. So I, I think there is a difference uh, and, and it hasn't been looked at. In, in our vein occlusion data, women weren't treated as aggressively of men in, in the first year. And, and that was in all subgroups of visual acuity. So it's got to translate into outcomes data, which is you know one of the things that we're interested in looking at. Um, if you look at the burden of blindness worldwide, it is way disproportionately borne by women. So women have worse visual outcomes in terms of blindness all around the world. Now, why exactly is that? Is that because they're deprioritizing themselves? Is it they're taking care of their family ahead of themselves? Is it because they're um, they're not, you know, physicians don't treat them aggressively enough? I mean, there are probably a whole bunch of different reasons, and it's probably different culturally in a lot of places as well. Um, so, you know, these are all really important questions. And I think, I think you bring up a really, really important point. And it's, it's, it's one thing um, that we're looking at right now in the IRIS database with regard to macular degeneration. Of course, that's mostly uh, a white, uh, you know, more Caucasian than, but, but, the, but the disparity, um, I'm inter I don't know what the answer to it is because we haven't done the uh, analysis yet, but I'm wondering if women are treated less aggressively than men there. Thanks, Dr. Haller. And I, I've heard you speak a little bit before about your journey into becoming a vitreoretinal surgeon. And, you know, for me coming up, I had people, um, you know, that I could look at as as, as role models and women in, in VR, you know, yourself and 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 Sharon Feckbrad and Cindy Toth and, you know, my Wilmer mentor, Susan Bressler. Why did you or how did you decide to become a VR surgeon? And what was that like for you in such a male-dominated homogeneous field? at the time? Why did you decide to, to, to kick that door in? Um, I came to ophthalmology loving surgery. And I actually did a surgical, I, I was a Halstead intern in surgery and um, was all set to go into general surgery when I did. I came down to Wilmer and, and uh, spent a month with Stuart Fine. Uh, at, and I was already in my fourth year of medical school. So I actually... Um, I, it was too late for the match. I had to take, a, I did a, it ended up being great because I did a year of research in pathology with Fred Jacobiak. Um, and, and so I was a late comer to ophthalmology. Uh, and the thing that was attractive to me about it was the surgical aspect. So I always knew that I was going to be attracted uh, to surgery. And I think, you know, all all of us have mentors of different stripes. And uh, in those early days, if you were a woman, you're, you know, you're pretty much had to have a male person who would take you under his wing. And, and Stuart, um, you know, was uh, early on, I mean, was a quite, he was quite a recruiter of Hopkins medical students into uh, ophthalmology and even the non-Hopkins students who did rotations there. So he, he, he really, uh, recruited me into the field uh, initially. And then, um, I, you know, I, I, Ron Michaels uh, at the time was 
I, I think many people considered him the top retina surgeon in the world. And, um, you know, I wanted to be that too. <laughs> and, um, and then my um, senior residents, um, when I was a first year resident, Jean Dewan and Paul Sternberg were both going into uh, retina surgery and, and um, you know, Jean would get me up the operating room and I couldn't believe it. You know, my first operations, I just was going, wow, you know, you can do this. This is just like awesome. And, um, and then, you know, Arnold Patz was um, the, was very, um, very encouraging. He did mostly medical retina and I really wanted to operate. Um, and then Mort Goldberg um, was hugely influential and gave me a couple of projects, um, you know, where I was able to give some talks and things like that. Um, so I, I, I aspired to be like those people. And uh, it took me a while to find my own voice. I remember interviewing um, the first time I interviewed for a chair position and I was aiming for the Mort Goldberg. And like, if you know Mort, you know me, it's like, that was really not my voice. <laughs> and I think it was when I realized that it became more comfortable with just being myself uh, that I had more success on that front. Uh, but anyway, I, I had, oh, Bob Welsh. Uh, Dr. Welsh um, was the first person I did scleral buckles with. And uh, he, and, and he, uh, would tell me about Alice McPherson because she had been a fellow at Mass Ioneer with with him and um, and uh, and and he loved uh, the Retina Society, which he had been one of the founding members of. And so he kind of instilled in me this desire to be part of that world. Um, so I I really had mostly male uh, mentors, but you know, God bless them. <laughs> they were great. Great, thank you. Well, Julie, you know, this has been a really interesting talk with you about, you know, gender representation and things like that. I'm I'm kind of curious though, what what are your thoughts on, you know, research and studies regarding other potential bias into in terms of other factors such as race or sexual orientation? It seems like things like that might be a lot harder because the granularity of data is probably much more difficult to find. But are you any thoughts on how we can look into that? Well, I think particularly ethnicity uh, is a hard thing. Like, uh, you know, we, in, in that vein occlusion analysis that I just was telling you about, we expected Hispanic ethnicity, which shows up as um, a factor to be uh, a negative, but it didn't show up in our analysis, but we had like 30% of the, uh, the with, with no ethnicity data. So, you know, when you, when you don't have that data, that could, that could make it, way positive or way negative. You just don't know with for the missing data. So um, I think we we have to make more of an effort to figure out what we want to be studying and then try to collect that data. Um, and I totally agree with you. I, I think, um, you know, any any subgroup that you pick that's been marginalized um, is, is probably, depending on where they are and who's treating them, it probably, it, it probably does make a difference. And how to understand how that impacts on outcomes, which is the point you were making earlier, is so key. I, Ali Khan has been working with Genentech and, you know, just think of their diabetic resource data. I mean, think I mean, Lucentis, I mean, the first one. And, uh, and so 
we looked uh, to see if there was a difference in outcomes for blacks treated with lucentis versus whites. And through the whole, and, and that huge, huge database, if you, if you looked by clinic, there wasn't enough to, it looked like blacks didn't do as well as white. It looks like there were five or 10 letters difference, which is significant. But you couldn't be sure because when you uh, did the multiple regression analysis, um, you couldn't control with clinics. Uh, there weren't enough patients enrolled at any one clinic to have enough numbers. And that's the whole database with all the DRCR net stuff. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? So, um, you know, we're just going to have to be uh, more aggressive there. There are examples of companies. Regeneron has been intentionally uh, working and, and the Wittbuckle Society is, has, has been at the forefront of this. Uh, Jace Ridar, Basil Williams, you know, a lot, and um, trying to it, work on getting people uh, up to speed in terms of being clinical investigators and 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 have clinical trials. There are companies, Bristol Myers Squibb, uh, and I'm I'm a director, <laughs> so I'm very proud of this. Has made a huge effort in cancer trials to have more trial centers in underrepresented areas. So instead of just Manhattan, you know, you're also in uh, maybe the area of the Bronx that is most heavily African American. And, and that's gonna, you know, I, I think probably there are gonna be difference in outcomes. Um, I'll tell you one of the great, great talks I've uh, on uh, disparities uh, was Eve Hickenbotham's um, Jackson lecture, which is archived. And I would recommend that to anybody. One of the interesting things that she showed from uh, work of a professor at Penn is um, she showed a map of Africa. So we'll say African-American, like that's one thing. So she showed the genetic variation around Africa, which is as great as, um, you know, Iceland from Japan. I mean, <laughs> so you know, to the point that you all have been making, uh, you know, there there's so many levels of lack of knowledge and specificity and granularity that we currently have in our databases. Um, and um, I think, you know, on the good side, there's lots of room for interesting work. Um, I, the, the, it's immediately clear that we need to be intentionally um, promoting and, and recruiting uh, a diverse group of people and casting a broad net and reaching down at younger ages. You know, people show as, you know, as long as eighth grade, you can make a difference in steering people into medicine. And um, and what we know um, from studies of, of medical students from diverse backgrounds is they they come in thinking primary care is what they're going to do because their example is their pediatrician or their grandmother's uh, primary care person that they help take her care of or with. And so they don't think of fabulous fields like ophthalmology until they finally get exposed, if ever, in medical school. Uh, you know, some great medical, both of your medical schools are great, great examples of where, you know, the medical students do get good exposure, but there are plenty of medical schools where they get almost no exposure. And so, you know, fourth year, they've been told, okay, do community stuff, um, you know, spend your time volunteering in clinics. Um, and suddenly it's fourth year and they go, no, too bad because you should have been writing papers and taking time off to study and get a 10% better score because you don't have any chance at all now. So, you know, we, we need to do better than that. Well, Dr. Heller, um, 
we very much appreciate your thoughtful comments and your expertise on this important topic. And um, I could just listen to you chat about your experiences and your perspectives um, uh, for, for forever. I think that um, it's just been an honor to speak with you on behalf of Steve and Rebecca here. Um, do you have any final comments about where we are as a field and just some final take home pearls for our retina community as far as where we are with diversity and inclusion and how we can keep moving the, uh, moving the field forward? Well, I think, um, well, first of all, the fact that we're having this discussion, it would, you know, I was asked to do lots of podcasts 10, 15 years ago. None of them were on this topic. And and really, it was just, what is it, two or three years ago that I gave the first diversity, equity, inclusion talk at Retina Subspecialty Day that had ever been given there. So, you know, we're late to the game, but at least uh, we're starting to, to be there. So congratulations. I think that's making a difference and it's on our radar screen now and it needs to stay there. Um, I think the type of leadership training that we're increasingly doing in ophthalmology is really important too, because everybody needs to be a better leader. And, uh, and part of leadership training is learning how to harness, you know, a diverse workforce and get them uh, inspired and, uh, and also to, uh, to be ahead of the curve in terms of seeing where you've got gaps and, and where you can make improvements. And shout outs to retina groups, but also women in ophthalmology. You know, that there was no women in ophthalmology when at or, or women in retina um, when I was coming along. And now those groups are specifically talking about leadership, talking about mentoring, talking about, you know, if you want to be a PI, it, you know, even though you're in private practice in the suburbs, you know, you can do it. How do you do that? Who do you have to connect with? And, um, and those messages are really important. And the, then the other message I think for young people is get the best training you can possibly, possibly get. Work really, really hard to be excellent. And then that is the basic building stone. <laughs> you know, this, that's that's the gotta be the foundation. And that is the, there's there's no substitute for that. So absolute clinical mastery and excellence. And then there's so many different ways you can go, and there are a lot more options out there for um, mentoring and leadership training. And um, that, and I think people can aspire to that on every level. You know, be it local um, advocacy for your patients in your in your medical society, um, subspecialty groups, young ophthalmology group for American Academy of Ophthalmology all the way up to the top. So uh, there, there are many opportunities out there and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very encouraged. We just had our open house yesterday uh, with applicants coming in and, you know, you guys are still, you're getting more senior than you used to be. <laughs> so, and I'm way more senior than you. And I think we can really be proud of the outstanding kids who still want to go into our specialty. Uh, there's a lot of hope there. This has been a fantastic discussion and a very important one. And I want to thank Dr. Scott and Sanislo for helping to shape this conversation. And again, a huge thank you to Dr. Haller for sharing her thoughts with us today. This concludes today's episode. Please tune in for future episodes of New Retina Radio.